peace be with you. Today's scripture reading is from Psalm 1 in its entirety. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screen behind me. Hear the word of the Lord. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of, of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And whenever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff, which, when the, which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning, Sojourn. How are you doing this morning? Good. It is it's good to be with you and to open uh, God's word with you. We're going to be looking at Psalm chapter one. It is, uh, it is indeed my privilege to be with you uh, this morning. As was mentioned, my name's uh, Michael Matala. I've served uh, as pastor of, uh, at New Breed for coming up on 10 years now. I've been pastoring in the West End for about 15 years now. Uh, so it is, a, it is a joy to come and share with you. I was thankful to receive this invitation from Pastor Jamal uh, to come and open God's word uh, with you this morning. Sojourn is a place that's actually very near and dear to our heart uh, at, at Newbury, but also to me as my, uh, and my family. Just last year, around this time for October and November, we came and my wife and I, uh, we spent a couple months on sabbatical here with you all, and we were loved so well. Uh, while we were here. And so I was honored when Jamal asked me to come uh, and, and to preach, even if he didn't show up uh, to hear it. But we're still friends, and I still love him. I still love him dearly. So again, it is my joy, though, to, to bring a word this morning, hopefully be a blessing to you. But you can be a blessing to me as well, all right? So I, I'm kind of used to, when I preach, people talking back. Now, I know that might not be in some of your wheelhouses, so I'm going to help you with that, okay? I want you to turn to your neighbor, and I just want you to say amen. amen. There you go. You can use that one if you agree with something that was said, all right? Now I want you to turn to your neighbor, and I want to say, well, go ahead, Pastor. Okay, you can use that one if I start stepping on your toes, but you know you need it, okay? Now here's the last one I'm going to give you. Look to your neighbor and just say, that ain't it. Hopefully, we won't need that one this morning. Okay, hopefully, we'll be all right with that. You with me? That was a test. Half of y'all failed. All right, here we go. <clears throat> no, I'm excited to be with you, but I have to be honest with you this morning. It is a daunting task often to preach just a one-off sermon. It can be tough. That's why at New Breed, one of the things we like to do is we like to preach through books of the Bible. I think it's good for a couple of reasons. I think one, it's just a good way to study God's word and to study through books of the Bible. But two, I'm just not creative enough to make up sermons every week. It's just not my gifting. So in praying through what to preach this morning, I decided to land on a psalm. I feel like it's always a safe bet to go with the psalms. And let me tell you why. I think that the Psalms are a uniquely special part of God's Word. I mean, they're songs of praise. That's what they are. But they capture, if you will, the emotions of the heart. 
the good, the bad, the joys, the sorrows, the uncertainties, and the confidences that we have in life, they can often reflect the cries of our own heart. One of the reasons I like the Psalms, if I'm being honest with you, is they just give me permission. I think the Psalms give me permission to ask really hard questions to communicate deep pains, to cry real tears and express real emotion, all the while seeing that God's big enough to take it. God's okay with it. And even more than that, church, that God is present through all of it. The Psalms tell us that our faith is not just a faith that's meant to capture our minds, but our faith is meant to be reflected in our emotions as well. However, Our faith has to be a faith that's grounded in something more solid than our emotions. So I figured I'd just start at the very beginning with Psalm chapter one this morning. And maybe if everything goes according to plan, one day he'll invite me back to do Psalm chapter two. But Psalm serves, Psalm chapter one serves as somewhat of an introduction to the Psalms. And so although we come into this place this morning with different joys and sorrows, different pains and triumphs, wherever we are, Psalm 1 speaks to the necessity of the word of God for our lives as the solid foundation we can build our lives on regardless of the season that we may be in. So I know we just read it, but I'm going to invite you to stand. It's kind of my habit. I want to read Psalm chapter 1 again. Let's be honest, nothing I'm going to say is going to be better than what God has already spoken. So let's look at Psalm chapter 1 beginning in verse 1. Here it is. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yield its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. But the wicked are not so. They are like chaff, which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And this morning, I just want to consider the idea of the blessed life. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, I humbly ask that you'll give me physical and spiritual strength to preach your word to your people for we are ready to hear from you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The blessed life. For many of us, Psalm 1 is likely a familiar psalm. Even as I was arriving early this morning, some people are asking me, what are you preaching? I'm preaching Psalm 1. Oh, I love that psalm. Somebody else, what are you preaching? Preaching Psalm 1. Oh, that's my favorite psalm. Psalm 1 is one that's known. But what I want to try to do this morning is I want, to, I want to try to dissect this psalm, if we can, to hopefully capture the weight of it. Because even in those first five words, right, there's something magnificent. How blessed is the man? The psalmist begins by telling us the purpose of the psalm. And the purpose of the the psalm is to declare how it is that you and I can have a blessed life, a life of happiness, of fullness, of completeness, of fulfillment. I mean, that's the life we want, is it not? How blessed is the man? Now, let's be honest. Maybe you're like me. I try to be honest in my preaching, so, you know, I'll confess. Good for the soul, bad for the reputation. When I first read those words, how blessed is the man, often the weight of those five words just, they don't quite hit me like they should. How blessed 
is the man. I think part of the reason they don't hit us the way that they should is because we, we've just got to acknowledge that we've often settled for less, right? Like we live in a society of fake blessings. We look for fulfillment in our families. We seek happiness in our technology. We pursue completeness in our, pre- in our, in our pleasure. So when God tells us that there's a blessing that is from him, we're often tempted to just shrug our shoulders because we've settled for less. What we have to understand is that what this world offers is not lasting blessings. Right? As St. Augustine reminds us, you seek a blessed life in a land of death, and it is not there. And often it's only when we acknowledge that we have nothing that we can truly marvel at the blessing that God is actually offering to us. Right? So that was true for two Hungarian brothers back in 2009. This is a true story. Their names were Zolt and Giza Pilati. So Zolt and Giza Pilati were living in a cave outside of the city of Budapest. Uh, at the time, they were in their 40s. And the reason that they were living in this cave was because they were homeless. Their life had not been easy up until this point. And they were in the cave because the shelters in Budapest were just overrun with the homeless population. They were too crowded for them. So these are two brothers who've had no money, no consistent job, and a very, very little hope for a prosperous future. And so they would often travel to the homeless shelter for food and clothes, but because there's no room, they would go back to their cave, spend some time there as long as they could. But then one day in 2009, everything changed. A charity worker who worked with the homeless was contacted by German lawyers and asked to help locate these two brothers. The reason being... These lawyers were handling the estate of the brother's maternal grandmother who had recently passed away. And by German law, direct descendants are automatically entitled to a share of any estate. And because the brother's mother had already passed away, the estate fell to them. And so once the brothers were located, they were contacted by the lawyers. They were informed they would be inheriting their grandmother's estate worth, check this out, roughly $7 billion. Listen, my grandma ain't built like that. (laughs) She's just not. But because of all the fame and the publicity it brought them, the brothers ended up having to hire hire an agent to kind of manage some of the media requests. And and, and there was one recorded instance. This was the the article I read where where the media was contacting this agent because they just wanted to know if it really was $7 billion dollars. Like, that's a lot of money. They wanted to confirm. And and I was struck by what the agent said because he said that the brothers understand that it's more than an average Hungarian can imagine. It's more than all of the people they know put together will ever have. And when I read that statement, I immediately thought of Psalm chapter 1. Because when God says, how blessed is the man, it is a statement that declares that with God, there is more available to you than all the world's goods put together that there is a blessing that is greater than what this world has to offer, that there is a happiness that can transcend your circumstances. There is a fullness that no amount of money in this world can buy. And what Psalm 1 declares is that this blessed life is available to you and to me. And me. Now, there are just two things I want you to see this morning, and then I'm in my seat. I'm hoping not to take too much time. Jamal told me if I went too long that he wouldn't be my friend anymore. And so I'm trying to be friends with Jamal when this is all over. That was a joke. (laughs) Two things I want you to see this morning. I want you to see the practice of the blessed life. And then I want you to see the promise of the blessed life. So first, let's look at the practice of a blessed life. 
Look again at verses one and two. It said, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. So the psalm begins once again by telling you and I how it is that a person is blessed. We see the practice of the blessed life. And the psalmist comes at it from two different angles. So first, the psalmist talks about what it is that we have to avoid if we want to live out this practice of the blessed life. That's what verse one is. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. So let me make it plain to you. What the psalmist is trying to get you to see is that you better pay attention to who it is that you take counsel from. You better take, pay attention to who it is that you take counsel from. Because here's the truth of the matter. The juxtaposition of verses 1 and 2 commute, communicates a very significant truth. Here it is. Every one of us is going to be discipled by something. The question is not, will you be discipled? The question is, who or what is it that's going to be doing the discipling? And what the psalmist is declaring is that the counsel of this world, the ways of this world, what the world offers is insufficient for producing a blessed life. And some of us know this, right? Like we don't need a theological degree to understand this because so many of us have pursued the sins of this world. We've pursued the things of this world and found that sin always overpromises and underdelivers. And so the psalmist expounds on this. Right, but what's significant about this first verse, I don't know if you, you caught it there, but there seems to be a progression in verse one. Did you see it? the walking, the standing, the sitting. And in this progression, there are three stages that the psalmist is highlight, that he's highlighting that we should avoid. Each of these three stages represents, hear me, the progression that sin most often takes in our life. So let me say it another way. For the Christian, you will never unexpectedly find yourself in sin. Like you won't just stumble into sin. There is a progression to it. Now, it might be a fast progression that runs the course of just a few seconds in your brain where it goes from temptation to choice. But sometimes it is days, months, years. But there is always a progression to our sin. And part of the reason the psalmist gives us this progression is that he wants you and I to recognize the pattern that sin most often takes and cut it off before sin can take root in our lives. He wants to make sure that we are not being discipled in wickedness. God is saying, blessed is the man. Happy is the one who just avoids sin. Now listen, that's a whole sermon in and of itself right there. Your life will just be better when you don't sin. And again, some of you could testify to that. Like we have pursued the sins of this world. We have looked for satisfaction in the things of this world. We have tried to find happiness in the ways of this world. And once again, it has always overpromised and underdelivered. I mean, that, that, that's, that's what Jeremiah 2.13 tells us, isn't it? That, that's, that's our problem. Jeremiah 2.13 says, We have forsaken him, the spring of living water, and we've dug our own cisterns, and they're broken cisterns, and they cannot hold water. I mean, that is a powerful statement. He's saying, here is God saying, I am the spring of living water. I am best. I will fill you. Like, you can have satisfaction in me. And what do we do? We dig our own cisterns, and they're broken cisterns. And they can't hold water. But here's the thing I love about Jeremiah 2.13. It doesn't say you can't put water in them. It just says they're broken and they never hold. See, that's where we get tripped up sometimes. 
Like sin will satisfy for a minute. Like if your sin doesn't satisfy for a minute, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> I'm not going to preach that sermon. Pastor, I'm not going to preach it. That's a different sermon. We can be satisfied for a moment with the things of this world, but it never lasts. And here is God saying, I am a spring of living water. I never run out. You'll never thirst again. But I know, right, in a very real sense, this can be hard for us to grasp. Because in our society, we have countless ways to dull the consequences of our sin. Like we don't feel the full weight and destruction that sin produces. And so here God is warning us because he's a good God. He's warning us to avoid the things that he knows will bring us pain and hardship. It's almost as if the God who is good knows what is good for us. So the psalmist is warning us to avoid falling into this trap of sin. So here's how the trap is laid. He says first that we should not walk in the counsel of the wicked. So the first step of sin or into sin, if you will, for the believer is usually not utter rebellion or contempt for God and what he says. It often starts a little bit more subtly than that. It starts by lending an ear to evil or walking in the counsel of the wicked. The idea here is that the process of sin doesn't necessarily start by partaking, but it could be heading that way by listening to the wicked about what they say is right and what they say is good. Or perhaps it's not even listening to them, right? Perhaps it's just observing the ways of this world and saying, man, they're pursuing wicked ends, but it seems like things are going good for them. That was Asaph's struggle in Psalm 73, wasn't it? I almost slipped because I envied the arrogant and I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And then in turn, what does he do? He begins to do what we do, to rationalize sin and to accept it. I want to be honest with you, church. Now, I'm not talking about y'all. You're a good church, okay? I know you're pastors. But we've got to be honest about the fact that we are witnessing this in real time with the church in America. That we have rationalized away sin. That we have observed the prosperity of the wicked and we say maybe that would be better. Like we are seeing in real time what Isaiah warned in Isaiah 5.20. Woe to those who call good evil and evil good, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. We are tempted, all of us, to listen to the world and think that they know what is right and good and true all the while neglecting the very truth of God. You know, a great example of this entire progression of sin is actually Eve in the garden. It's Eve. You know the story, right? God creates the world, creates Adam and Eve in his likeness and his image. They're walking in fellowship with God. There is no sin. Everything's good. But God gave them command. Hey, listen, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, don't, don't touch that one. Don't eat it. And we don't know how long Adam and Eve were faithful, right? We don't know if it was five days, five years, 500. We don't know. But there comes a point where Satan shows up. And what does he say? Did God really say? And Eve lends an ear to evil. And it's walking in the counsel of the wicked that will lead to temptation. So I want to I mention something here. Track with me. This is the temptation part of the progression. I was very intentional about my words earlier to say this is what can lead us to sin. But I want to be clear about something. It is not a sin to be tempted. And I think I'm on good exegetical ground here. Because the Bible tells us that Jesus was what? Tempted in every way. 
yet without sin. And I, and I need you to get this this morning. This may, maybe this is the pastor's heart coming out of me a little bit. There are people, I am convinced, in a room this size, there are people in this room right now that are condemning themselves because you are constantly being tempted with the same stupid sin. You are believing that you are somehow less than because you cannot shake that same old temptation. But please hear me, brother, sister. Your faithfulness has never been determined by the degree of your temptation. Your faithfulness has always been determined by what you do when you are tempted. You may be tempted with the same thing until the day you die. Let's be honest. We all struggle in patterns of sins, don't we? Three people? Cool. All right, well, well, for the three of us, right, we struggle in patterns of sin. But faithfulness is not determined by the temptation or the quantity of it. Faithfulness is determined by choosing to follow God whenever temptation comes. But here's the hope that we have, church. For those of us in Christ, there will never come a temptation when God is not active in providing you with a way out. That, that's 1 Corinthians 10, 13, is it not? No temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation, he will always provide the way out so that you may be able to bear it. That idea of providing a way out, it's literally this idea that God will make a way out of no way for you. Like you know we got a God who can make a way out of no way. And you don't have to say, amen, I brought my own witnesses for this one, okay? You can go ask Israel if God can make a way out of no way when their backs were up, were up against the Red Sea. You, you can ask David if God can make a, a way out of no way when he stood before Goliath, uh, Goliath with some rocks in a sling. You can ask Daniel and the lions if God can make a way out of no way. What I'm trying to tell you is that you will never face a temptation where God is not actively giving you a way out. The question is not, is there a way out? The question is, are you looking for the way that God has provided? Like, and some of you know this to be true because some of you have been on your phone about to send that stupid text or look at that website that you know you shouldn't have looked at and all of a sudden your phone rings from that random brother or sister at Sojourn and you can either hit decline and continue down your path of foolishness but don't think for a minute that was a coincidence. That's God giving you a way out. Some of you have been about to go someplace on Friday night that you know good and well you shouldn't be going to, and all of a sudden that headache hits you. You got two options. You can stay home and rest, or you can pop some Tylenol and continue on in your foolishness. But once again, make no mistake, that's not a coincidence. That's God giving you a way out. I'll give you one more. Some of you have been tempted to avoid that person that you know you need to reconcile with. And everywhere you seem to go, you run into that person. Make no mistake. That's not a coincidence. That is God giving you a way out. We could go around this room, if we were honest, and hear testimony after testimony that started with, I almost slipped, but God was faithful. Again, the question is not, is there a way to avoid sin when temptation is in front of you? The question is, will you be looking for the way that God is creating? So the progression begins with walking in the counsel of the wicked. But if temptation is given into, the next place we find ourselves is standing in the path of sinners. So if we are not careful, we will quickly move from listening, observing, and rationalizing to partaking in what we have seen and heard and considered. And when you are standing in the pathway of sinners, the idea here is that you have moved from temptation to participation. And again, you can go back to Eve in the garden. 
Satan tempts Eve, and rather than turn away, rather than run away, rather than ignore this conversation with Satan, she engages and she, she begins to rationalize it. Well, that tree does look pretty good. I don't think I've had that fruit before. I wonder what it tastes like. It sure is a beautiful tree. And she eats and she participates. And as bad as that is, the progression doesn't actually stop there. Because the psalmist goes on and says that from standing in the path of sinners, you can move to be one who sits in the seat of scoffers. And so before we know it, if we are not keeping our sin in check through repentance with the power of the Spirit, this is where we will find ourselves, sitting complacent in our sin, where we have made our dwelling among those of the world, and we are now actually the ones leading people astray. Again, you can go back to the story of Eve because it doesn't stop with her eating the fruit. Here, Adam, try this. This is the progression that the psalmist warns us to avoid. And his argument here is fairly simple. There is no true happiness by being like those of this world. There is no lasting joy to be found in the things of this world. And again, for many of us, we know this to be true just experientially. But you know what's kind of wild to me when I think about it? I think one of the craziest things is that we often forget that in pursuing the things of this world, what we're actually doing is pursuing a lesser version of what God has already promised us in full. Have you noticed that? I mean, take Eve from it. What's the temptation? God knows that if you eat this, you will what? Be like him. Fam, she was already like God. Because Genesis tells us that God created Adam and Eve in his image and likeness. She was sacrificing a fuller, better picture of God's satisfaction for a lower, lesser reality. And don't we do the same thing so often? Pursue a lesser version of satisfaction than the fuller gift that's offered by Jesus. So the psalmist here at the jump has told us what not to do. But there's a flip side when it comes to the practice of a blessed life, right? It's not just what you don't do. It's also what you should do. So verse two, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. Now, a couple of things I want to point out. First, he says that the blessed life is one that delights in the Lord's instruction. Catch that word, delights, not just tolerates. Not just checks the box that, hey, I read my Bible today, but one who delights in the fact that when we open this book, we are hearing from God. It's a picture of being so satisfied with the word and simultaneously never being satisfied enough where we want more and more of it. As a church, we have to grow in approaching the scripture, not from a posture of something that we have to do, but something we get to do. We get to read the words of God. And in so doing, we're actually cultivating a deeper relationship with a God who wants our good and flourishing in the world. Now, here's the thing. Maybe you're here and you're like, you know what, Pastor, like, I want that, right? Like, I want, to, I want to cherish the word. I want to delight in it. But it seems like every time I open my Bible, it just seems like a burden and a chore. I get that. I'm not trying to like load you up with condemnation. I get that that's real. Here's my encouragement to you. It's not very profound, but this is the best I got, okay? Keep going. Because so often what starts as duty 
God will switch and turn into a delight. Right? We always want quality over quantity, but we've got to also recognize that it's only through quantity that there is an opportunity for quality. And so we just got to keep at it, trusting that the Spirit will turn what seems like a duty into a delight as we savor more and more of who God is, right? The Bible is not a distraction from us living our life. It is the means by which we understand and enjoy the blessed life that God has cultivated for us. Can I propose to you this morning that it's actually in the Word of God that we can come to understand just how blessed we can be? I mean, Psalm 34, verse 8, right? Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Psalm 32, verse 1. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Let me give you one more. Psalm 65, verse 4. How blessed is the one whom you chose and bring near to you to dwell in your courts. We will be satisfied with the goodness of your house, your holy temple. It should be our delight to open this word and not just receive instruction, but to come and see and understand just how good God has been to us. But notice how the the psalmist presses in here, right? He says he meditates on it day and night. Oh, I'm sorry. He said he he does 15 minutes in the morning before work. Oh, no, wait, I was right the first time. He meditates on it day and night. In other words, the word of God is not meant to just simply be a part of our life. The word of God is meant to consume our life. Because if I recall, Jesus himself taught that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. I don't believe this morning, church, it would be an understatement to say that our very existence is a result of the words of God. And once again, I know I'm on good exegetical ground because I go back to Genesis 1 and it tells me that there was a time when God existed in nothing. He looked at nothing, but when he spoke to nothing, something showed up. Everything that exists is a result of the words of God. I'll do you one better. Your salvation is the result of the word of God because what we see in John chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh and has dwelt among us and we observed his glory. The glory is the one and only son from the father full of grace and truth. And what I'm trying to get you to see and believe this morning is that the word of God is truly an amazing gift, one that we should not only delight in, but rely on for our very life. I know this takes time. Listen, when I started my Christian walk, it started off with I have to read the Word of God. But then I started living a little bit more. And it changed into I really should read the Word of God. And the more I've lived and the more I've seen the sufficiency of God's Word, the more I've looked in His Word and seen His faithfulness to me, it has changed. I get to read the Word of God. We need the Word. Now, let me just kind of press in a little bit, give you one little point of application. I'm not really trying to start a fight. I don't know y'all like that. Well, maybe I am because I don't know y'all like that. So I get to leave when this is over. If all this is true, let's let's just talk for a minute. If all this is true, then maybe we should stop trying to get our theology from Twitter. And we should start try, stop trying to get our, our scriptural positions from Facebook. And maybe, just maybe, we should open the Word of God and see what he actually has to say about himself. Because I bet I could go around this room and some of y'all could tell me who your favorite theologian think, what they think. They're not all bad. They're not. But can I just tell you that God is a better testimony of his own nature and character than any human being could ever be. And he has spoken through his word. Yeah. All right, I'm done. Y'all can flesh that out later without me. 
So let me summarize everything that I just said in this first point in one sentence. You're like, good, Michael, if you would have done that at the start, this would have been a lot easier. Here it is. The practice of the blessed life is one that relies on the word of God more than anything else in this world. That's it. Now, I know in a room this size, I can say that now, finally, in a room this size, you'll get it later. There's somebody who's asking the question, yeah, yeah, I get that. But is it really worth it? Like, that just seems like a lot of work to meditate day and night on the word of God, not to take counsel from the wicked, not to stand in the way of sinners, not to sit in the seat of scoffers. Is it really worth it? Well, it's almost as if the psalmist anticipates a question like this, because after he talks about the practice of the blessed life, if you're unconvinced, he reveals the promise of the blessed life. Now look again at verses three through six. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff, which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The psalmist here reveals the promise or if you will, what the blessing actually is. He says that the one who delights in the word of God, the one who meditates on it day and night, here again is the blessing. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. Okay, so y'all missed your amen. So let me explain to you, right? We could have moved on, but let me explain to you the majesty of this statement. Here's the picture he's trying to pay. He says, first, he says, you will be like a tree firmly planted. You do know where the strength of a tree comes from, right? It's roots. Amen. Comes from its roots, not what you can see on the outside, not the beautiful leaves, not what we often appreciate. That's not where the strength comes from. It comes from its roots. Let me give it to you like this. Um, it's St. Charles Street in Louisiana. Anybody been to Louisiana? Cool. Couple people. Field trip. Um, all right. So... St. Charles Street in Louisiana, it's lined with 700 beautiful live oak trees. I mean, it is a sight to behold, right? So when you get home, Google St. Charles Street live oaks. Not right now, we're in church. When you get home, Google it, look at it. They are beautiful trees, and they have been a staple of that community for decades. When Hurricane Katrina hit back in 2005, many feared that these beautiful trees that have been growing for so long would be killed. They were, they were very afraid that this staple would be gone. And so when they were finally able, after all the carnage, all, all the destruction, when they were finally able to get back into the city, into St. Charles, Charles Street, and, and, and see the trees, they were shocked. Because despite all the devastation that the storm had brought all around them, only four of the 700 live oak trees had died. So they started kind of looking a little bit closer at these trees. What is it? about these trees that allowed them to stand in the storm. I'm telling you this, will preach if you'll let me. The primary reason they found that they were able to without, to withstand the storm was because of their roots. Because here's what they found. Not only were they incredibly deep, but the roots actually spiraled as they grew. And so one arborist said it like this. He said, the strength was actually not that the trees were holding onto the ground, but that the ground was holding on to the tree. 
Okay, that picture started preaching to me right there. I'm, tr- I'm trying to tell you this morning, church, that the promise of the blessed life is that if we delight ourselves in the word of God, if we hold on to him, the promise is that we are guaranteed to endure, not because of the strength of our own hands, but because God will be holding on to you. But there's more in this picture. He says, listen, not only will you be planted firmly, but you'll be planted by streams of water. It's not only that your roots are deep, but the supply is abundant. I like the way the old preacher Charles Spurgeon said it. He said it like this, streams of water. So that if one river should fail, he has another. The rivers of pardon and the rivers of grace. The rivers of promise and the rivers of communion with Christ. But here it is, but they are never failing sources of supply. But let's keep going with the promise. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water. Here it is, which yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. You see, I like this. I'd never noticed this before. That's the amazing thing about God's word. It doesn't matter how long you've been studying it. You go to it again and the Holy Spirit's still going to be working on you. But I'd never noticed this. Notice how the tree is planted firmly. It's supplied abundance, but it still has to go through its seasons. The tree goes through the heat of summer. It feels the chill of fall. It witnesses the death of winter. But then spring comes again and it bears fruit. See, here's why I like this so much. The promise is that you will you will bear fruit in the proper season. The promise is not that winter will never come. The promise is not that you will never experience pain and hardship. The promise is not that the storms won't rage. The promise is that by God's abundant supply, your life by clinging to him and his word, your life will bear fruit. In other words, you will have a life that is marked by love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control, all the fruit of a blessed life. But finally, at the end of verse 3, he says, and in whatever he does... He prospers. Now I want to be clear about this. This is not God saying that if you trust in me, your business will be a success. This is not God saying that if you trust in me, your bank account will be full. This is not God saying that if you trust in me, you will have a life that will always be marked by health, wealth, and earthly prosperity. No, the prospering the psalmist is talking about is a spiritual prosperity. Let me say it another way. In other words, even in the darkest moments, when work isn't going well, when the bank account is empty, praise God, when the pain of this world seems to be too much, the promise of the blessed life is this, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. How do we know that this is true? Because the promise of the blessed life is that while you may fight to hold on to God, God promises that he will hold on to you. All right, so I'm running out of time. I'm going to tell y'all, 9 o'clock kicks y'all's butt. They were hyped this morning. Maybe it's my fault. I'm tired, but I'm going to give it to you now the best I got, and then I'm in my seat. Church, the reason that I got up to preach to you this morning was to tell you that there is power in the hands of God. And listen, you don't have to say amen again because I brought my own witnesses. You asked the leper in Matthew 14 because when Jesus' hands touched the leper, the sickness had to go. 
You can ask the dead girl in Mark 9 because when they put a dead girl in Jesus' hands, she rose to life. You put two loaves and a few fish in Jesus' hands and watch as he feeds the multitude. But if those didn't get you, I'm going to give you the best one I got. You put nails in his hands and you watch as salvation flows because that's the gospel that we believe. That when we couldn't get to God, he is so good that he came near to us. Jesus, God in flesh, he lived the perfect life that we should have lived but can't. He was righteous in all of his ways, but he was tried as a criminal. They convicted him on false charges. They put nails in his hands. They put nails in his feet. They put a spear in his side, and he was crucified to pay a debt that you and I owe. They buried him in a tomb, and he stayed in that tomb all day Friday. And he stayed in that tomb on Saturday, church, but then early on Sunday morning. He rose to life again. So the promise of the blessed life is guaranteed because all God's promises find their yes and amen in Jesus. So I'm trying to tell you, church, that not only is there enough power in those hands to save you, there is enough power in those hands to keep you. And there ought to be at least five or six of you who can testify this morning that the reason that you are here in this place is not because you've managed to keep yourself together. And the reason that you are here is not because you managed to keep your life from sin. The reason that you are here is not because you got the right theology and the best education. The reason that you are still standing is despite all the mess that you've gone through, God has never failed to keep hold of you. And so if all that is true, there ought to be at least five or six of you who can give a shout of praise like our brother Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. And to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time now and forevermore. Because of Jesus, you and I are privileged to pursue the blessed life. And because of Jesus, the promise is guaranteed. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, oh God, give us grace to believe you when you say that You offer something better than what this world has. God, we need your spirit to work in power. That we would walk out this blessed life that you have provided for us. And God, in those moments when we falter and when we fail, I pray that you would remind us that there is no condemnation for us because of Christ Jesus. And that we would look to Jesus and see his body and his blood and continue to pursue you, the God who's been so faithful to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hi, I'm Jamal Williams, lead pastor of Sojourn Midtown. Thanks for listening. At Midtown, we value gospel-centeredness, biblical faithfulness, transformative relationships, diverse fellowship, creativity in the arts, and relentless mission. For more sermons, info about our church, visit SojournChurch.com Midtown.